Hi, I'm John Visklaski, and this is Not So True Crime. In every episode, I share with you a new piece of original short fiction. On today's show, we're going to be reading a story called The Session. It's a story about a young woman struggling with grief and addiction who goes to see a new therapist for the very first time. As the session progresses and the woman reveals more about her past, we come to learn about the price of loss and the consequences of her own mistakes. And now, without further delay, The Session, written and read by John Visglaski. The first thing Nathan noticed when he saw his new patient sitting in the waiting room of his office was how attractive she looked. She was sitting alone in the empty waiting room, which had once been the house's living room, wearing black jeans and a patterned top, her dark hair cut short, just the way he liked. She couldn't have been more than 27 or 28, her skin pale and unblemished. Standing there in the empty doorway, he was struck by a strong sense of familiarity, as if he'd seen this girl before, though he couldn't have said where that might have been. It was probably just his mind playing tricks on him, a recollection of some past session, years gone and half remembered. Another girl who had once looked sort of like this one now did. Most of his patients had that same look, all of them flighty and thin. Beneath the dark pencil leg jeans, he could see the pleasing shape of her legs, her thighs long and thin, too thin now that he looked. He stared up at her slender face, her jaw sharp, cheeks hollow. She had the slim, wasted build of a runway model or a long distance runner, her limbs long and thin, breasts flat, hips slim. It was the same lean, underfed look of most of the addicts he'd met. Rebecca, he said. She looked up at the sound of her name, her eyes darting nervously to his face. I'm Dr. Peters, he said, speaking in his warm therapist's tone. If you'd like to come into my office, I think we can get started. Are, are you sure? She said, glancing down at her phone. My appointment isn't until three. Nathan glanced at his watch. It was almost 2.40. It looks like my two o'clock is a no-show, he said. Figured we might as well start a bit early. Don't worry, I won't charge you any extra. He'd meant it as a joke, something witty and self-effacing. But the girl didn't even crack a smile. She just nodded and gathered up her purse and followed him back into his office. The room was at the rear of the house with a set of wide French doors that opened onto a small patio. The other walls were covered with shelves, cluttered with books and framed photos. At one end of the long, open room sat two plush leather armchairs, separated by a low coffee table. He gestured her into the nearest of the two chairs, and she sat, crossing her long legs. He sat in the chair opposite hers, a fresh cup of afternoon coffee sitting on the side table next to him. I hope you weren't waiting too long, he said. Sorry there wasn't anyone there to greet you. I'm sure you probably noticed, but I don't have a receptionist. Why not? she asked. Isn't it hard to run a practice like this without anyone here to help out? 
Not really, said Nathan. I had one for a couple of years, back when I was first starting my practice. But all she really did was handle my appointments and billing. And I can do that for myself. This way, it cuts down on costs and I don't have to see as many patients. I can focus more on the ones I have. Give them my complete attention. I guess that's good, Rebecca said, giving a tight, brisk nod. So, Rebecca, Nathan said, leaning back in his leather chair. Why don't we get started with our session? I understand you were referred to my practice by Dr. Robards at Holy Cross Hospital? That's right. The girl nodded, picking nervously at her nails. He's a very good doctor, Nathan said. We've worked together with a lot of patients. That's what Dr. Robard said. Do you mind if I record this session? He asked, picking up the small digital recorder from the end table next to his chair. No, no, not at all, she said, looking nervously around the office. All right, Nathan said. He hit a button on the recorder and set it on the coffee table between them. So, Rebecca said, still picking nervously at her nails. How exactly does this work? You've never been to see a psychiatrist? She gave a nervous half-grin. I had a few sessions with a therapist at the campus health center back in college. Nothing since then. Well, Nathan said, why don't you start by telling me what substances you typically use? The girl stared at him, lips pressed tightly together. It was a common enough reaction whenever he made this first request. Nobody was eager to discuss their less-than-savory habits. Nathan looked closely at her. Despite the hollowed-out cast of her face, the barely suppressed look of resentment and shame, she really was stunning, her eyes clear and dark and probing. Did Dr. Robard speak to you about the rules of doctor-patient confidentiality? He asked. He did, she said. Good, Nathan said. Then you know I can't tell the authorities about any crimes you may have committed, including the use, distribution, or possession of any illegal narcotic substances. If I did, there's a good chance I'd lose my license. You don't have to worry about any kind of legal ramifications for anything you say as part of these sessions. The important thing is for you to be open and honest with me. It's the only way I'll be able to help you. Deal? For a moment, she paused then nodded. Good, said Nathan. So, what sorts of substances do you use? Painkillers, mostly, Rebecca said, scratching at a spot on the back of her neck. Sometimes Vicodin, but mostly Oxy and Codeine. And do you use anything else, he said? Cocaine? Heroin? I tried cocaine a few times in college, just with friends at parties, but no, not recently. Nathan nodded. What about alcohol? How much do you drink? I usually drink two glasses of wine after dinner, just to help me sleep. And how long have you been taking the painkillers? The girl leaned forward in her chair, running a hand over her short cropped hair. I'm sorry, she said. Could I get a glass of water? I, I would have asked earlier, except... Right, Nathan said. No receptionist to get it for you. She nodded. Do you think you could maybe... Of course. He smiled at her warmly. Be back in a second. He walked out from his office, across the hall and into the kitchen, 
Taking a glass from one of the cupboards, he held it beneath the tap and filled it. He walked back into the office and handed it to her, one of his fingers brushing hers as she took it. Thanks, she said, taking a long swig. He took a careful sip of his coffee, the fresh brew strong and bitter. So, he said, when she'd finished drinking, how long have you been taking the pills? She thought for a moment. About three years? And are you in any kind of treatment program? Narcotics Anonymous? Anything like that? Yep. She gave a tight, humorless grin. Just got my three-week chip. Congratulations, said Nathan. The girl frowned. It's my fourth time getting it. Nathan shrugged. That just means you're still trying. Some people don't even bother. The girl picked up her water taking another long gulp. She'd finished almost half the glass. Nathan reached again for his coffee, took another sip himself. So, you've been using for three years? Give or take, she said. Any reason in particular you might have started using in the first place? She frowned. Nathan sat in silence, waiting her out. He picked up his coffee, took another sip, and set it back down. After almost a full minute of silence, the girl sat back in her chair. She folded her arms across her chest and uncrossed her legs. My sister died, she said, three years ago last month. How did she die? Nathan asked. She overdosed on painkillers, Rebecca said. I started taking dolaphine two weeks after her funeral. I'm sorry to hear that, Nathan said. Rebecca stared at him. You don't seem very surprised. Should I be? He said. Most people are. She shook her head. I guess when they hear how my sister died, it's hard for them to understand. Understand what? How I could be taking pills after what happened to her? He nodded. I guess I can see how some people might think that, uh, ignorant as it is. In my experience, there's a genetic component in many cases of addiction. It tends to run in families. Addiction is also a reaction to trauma. A lot of people start using after suffering some kind of setback or loss. She nodded. How old was your sister when she died? 23, Rebecca whispered. That must have been very hard for you. It was. She took another sip of water. Christ, had she not had anything to drink all morning? It was like she just crawled in out of the desert. Were you and your sister close, he asked, when she had put down the glass. Yes, the girl nodded. We were only two years apart. We shared a bedroom in my parents' house until I left for college. You said she died of an overdose, said Nathan. That's right. How long had she been using when she died? About four years, since she was 19. The girl frowned with remembered disgust. She had a boyfriend in college some guy named Chet. He was the one who got her started. At first they were just smoking a little pot and then they started doing coke. I didn't know about the pills until I went to visit her for a weekend. Apparently Chet was getting them from one of the other guys in his frat. I tried telling her to stop, but that just pissed her off. Nathan lifted a hand to his mouth, hiding a yawn with his fist. She failed out of school two months into her senior year. She had to move back in with my parents. 
They tried putting her in a treatment program, but it didn't really take. After a while, they sent her to inpatient. One of those places where all the windows are covered with steel grates and they lock you into your room at night. Nathan stifled another yawn. He'd had to skip lunch to cover a last-minute session, and the lack of calories, combined with the afternoon sun, was making him feel drowsy. He was going to have to sneak something from the fridge before his four o'clock showed up. They kept her there for two months, Rebecca said, shaking her thin head. I never got a clear answer, but I think it must have cost my parents somewhere around 60 grand. And when she got back home from inpatient, she looked awful. She was just so pale and thin, like she hadn't eaten anything in a week. But she was clean, and she stayed clean for a couple of weeks. When did you find out she was using again? The girl looked down at her hands. About four months after she got back, and my parents found her in the bathroom, passed out on the floor next to the sink. They took her to the hospital in my dad's station wagon. She'd overdosed on Vicodin. Nathan blinked, still feeling a little sleepy. He took a long sip of coffee, hoping it would wake him up. You okay? Rebecca asked. <clears throat> Fine. Fine, he said. Just a little rundown. It was a busy morning. I had to skip lunch. Do you need to grab something from the kitchen? Not until we're finished, Nathan said. Please, continue. She nodded. Well, after she was released, I, I went back home to live with my parents. Not permanently or anything, just for a few weeks. I wanted to keep an eye on my sister and try to give my parents a break. That must have been very hard on you, Nathan said. It was, Rebecca said. But for a while, she seemed to be staying clean. After they took her to the hospital, my dad went through the whole house. He looked in every cabinet, every drawer, threw out every pill he could find. For the first few weeks, we stayed with her every minute. I even slept on the pullout in her bedroom. After about three weeks, I told my parents to take off for the weekend. They'd been fighting a lot lately, and they both seemed... Stressed, said Nathan. Yeah, stressed. It can be hard on a marriage, he said, looking after a child who's an addict. Not all my patients are users. I sometimes treat members of their families, people who have been touched by addiction, even if they aren't addicts themselves. It's often hardest on the parents. It can be difficult for them to see their child as an adult who's struggling and needs help. A lot of marriages aren't strong enough to survive that kind of pressure. And that's what I was afraid of, said Rebecca. You were worried they might break up? She nodded. They'd fought a few times when we were kids, just about stupid couple things. But I'd never seen them fight like this. Some of the things they said, she trailed off. It was almost like they blamed each other for what was happening to my sister. At first, they tried not to fight in front of us. They'd just be kind of quiet and polite but her bedroom was right next to theirs. Sometimes at night we would hear them screaming at each other. She took a long, steadying breath. Anyway, she said, running a hand over her short brown hair. I told them to go rent a condo on the beach, get away from the house for a few days. I thought it might be good for them. 
help them relax, just take a breath. I promised to keep an eye on my sister, make sure she didn't get into any trouble. The girl paused, swallowed, took another sip of water. Sitting in a chair across from her, Nathan took a swig of his coffee. Saturday night, a friend texted me, she said. Somebody I hadn't seen in years. She wanted me to come out and grab a few drinks. I invited my sister to come with me. Not to drink anything, she explained. Just get out of the house for a little bit. She said she'd rather stay home, stream a few movies, go to bed early. She started running every morning, I guess as a way to try and quiet her cravings. She was waking up at four or five every day, running six or seven miles before anyone else was even awake. She usually went to bed around nine, so I didn't think there was anything strange about it. I promised I'd be back in two hours. Then I went to the bar to meet my friend. She paused. Nathan said nothing. You know, my parents live way out in the suburbs, and my sister, she didn't have a car. She didn't have a phone. There was nobody out there she could buy from. I, I, I didn't think she could get into any trouble. I figured it'd be okay to leave her on her own for a few hours. She took a long, steadying breath, her thin shoulders sagging slightly. She lifted a hand to scratch at her neck, rubbing until the skin was red. I got back home around ten, she said. I'd stayed out for three, three and a half hours, longer than I'd said. When I came in the door, all the lights were off, so I shouted my sister's name. She didn't answer. I found her on the floor, next to her bed. She'd vomited all over herself. When I got to her, she wasn't breathing. Her lips looked blue. I called an ambulance on my cell and I tried giving her CPR. My dad had made us all take a class with the lifeguards at our local pool just so we'd all know how to do it in case we ever needed to. When the paramedics got to the house, they had to drag me off her. I was still trying to get her heart going. I broke three of her ribs, and that's how hard I was pushing. They told me later that by the time I got there, she'd already been dead for more than two hours. For a few moments, they sat in silence. The only sound that of the clock, ticking softly from a nearby shelf. Were you the one who called your parents and told them what had happened? He asked. Yes. Rebecca nodded. I called them from the waiting room of the hospital. They both knew what had happened before I even said anything. My dad, he couldn't stop crying. But my mom, she just seemed numb, said Nathan. Not really numb, said Rebecca. It was more like she was relieved. Like she'd been expecting it to happen, and now that it had, she could stop worrying. Nathan took a sip of his coffee, finishing the last of the mug. He leaned back in his chair, feeling a little dizzy. Probably just too much coffee on top of an empty stomach. He'd have to switch over to tea before seeing his next patient. You said you... Started taking painkillers two weeks after her funeral, he said. Yeah, Rebecca said. I was going through her room, 
packing up all her things, and I found a few bottles of dolaphine hidden between the mattress and the box spring. I didn't want my parents to find them, so I put them in my purse. I don't know why I didn't just throw them out. After my sister died, I started having trouble sleeping. I'd just lay there all night in bed, thinking about finding her body. One night, I decided to take one of the pills, just to see if it would help. Did it? asked Nathan. She nodded. I slept for 13 hours straight. I didn't even get up to pee. How often did you start using? Not that much at first, she said. I tried limiting it to no more than one a week. I told myself that was all right, that I could take them every once in a while and still be okay. But after the first few months, I started taking them more often. Eventually, I ran out. I had to try and find a dealer. Nathan nodded. He lifted a hand to the back of his neck, which had started to bead with sweat. It wasn't because the room was too warm. It was more like the way he'd felt that one time he'd gotten the flu. He'd spent that whole week in bed, curled up beneath a pile of blankets, his whole body shivering with fever, sweating through his one pair of sheets. That was how this felt, more like a cold sweat than anything else. In spite of the warm summer sun filtering in through the back of the house, the whole room felt chilly, almost like it was winter. Christ, he hoped he wasn't coming down with something, although considering some of the patients he saw, the odds that he was were fairly high. Nathan crossed his arms, trying to refocus his attention. He was going to have to turn down the air before beginning his next session. I noticed on the <clears throat> questionnaire I send to all of my prospective patients that you have an arrest on your record, he said. Misdemeanor possession? She nodded. I got busted one night for trying to buy from an undercover cop. I had to call my parents from jail, asked them to come and post my bail. My mother showed up two hours later. She was standing out in the reception area, waiting. She didn't say a single word. She just walked out to her car, drove me home. Rebecca shook her head, as if trying to clear it of the memory. When we pulled up outside my building, she told me to get out of the car. She said she didn't want to hear from me again until I could get myself sober. She said that looking after my sister had taken too much out of them, and that she didn't want to put my dad through that same hell again. I guess he'd had a small stroke a month after she died. They didn't call and tell me about it because they didn't want me to worry. She rolled her eyes. She said that taking care of my sister had almost killed him, and that taking care of me might actually do it. She didn't want me to call or come by the house to see them until I could make it a whole year clean. She paused. That was the last time I saw her. Nathan lifted a hand to his collar, loosening the top button. I'm sorry, he said. This might be a hard question for you to hear. You don't have to answer it right now if you don't want to. But do you think your mother might have blamed you for what happened to your sister? She thought for a moment. I don't know, she said. I guess maybe she did. Nathan leaned back in his chair, his eyelids growing suddenly heavy. The room had definitely grown colder, yet he could feel his shirt clinging to his chest, his arms and back slick with sweat. Hey, are, are you all right? Rebecca asked. 
staring at him from across the table. You don't look very good. Just a little tired, Nathan said. He tried to smile and got about halfway. I think I just need a glass of water. He swallowed, his throat so dry it hurt. He started to rise from his chair, almost fell. I'll, I'll get you one, Rebecca said, holding up her hand. You just stay there. Thank you, Nathan said. He didn't try to argue with her. She walked across the hall into the kitchen, emerging a few seconds later and handing him a tall glass of water. Nathan took it greedily from her, drinking it down in four large gulps. Any better? she asked. Much, he said, catching his breath. We don't have to keep going, she said. If you're not feeling well, we can just reschedule. It's fine, he said. I just needed a glass of water. Rebecca sank back into her chair, crossing her long, thin legs. Let's get back to it, Nathan said. You said you didn't know if your mother blamed you for your sister's death? She nodded. Is it possible you blame yourself? Rebecca looked at him. Wouldn't you? I guess I would, he admitted, considering the circumstances. That doesn't mean I'd be right. Rebecca gave a bitter smile. I'm the one who left her at home. I'm the one who went out with a friend. I'm the one who stayed out for three hours while she was by herself, dying. So you tell me, Dr. Peters, if I'm not responsible for what happened, then who the fuck is? Nobody, said Nathan, calmly. You can blame yourself all you want, but what happened to your sister isn't your fault. There's nothing you could have done to stop it. She gave a harsh, bitter laugh. I could have told my parents when I found those pills, gotten them to put her back in rehab. He frowned. I thought you said you didn't find the pills until after your sister was already dead. He loosened another button on his shirt. Rebecca looked down at her hands. Three weeks before Lacey died, I was doing some of her laundry. I found a few bottles of Demerol hidden in the back of her closet. I waited until she got home from her run, then I confronted her about it. I asked her where she'd gotten the pills and how long she'd been taking them. She just started crying and begged me not to tell anyone. I told her I wouldn't say anything as long as she told me where she was getting them. Lacey. Her sister's name had been Lacey. Something clicked in Nathan's memory. Why did that name sound so familiar? I'm sorry, he said, taking a long, torpid breath. I'm, I'm still not feeling very well. Maybe we should reschedule. Rebecca went on, speaking over him. At first she didn't want to tell me, but I kept threatening to go to our parents. She knew they'd send her back to rehab if they found out she was using again. Nathan was starting to feel lightheaded. He tried to stand, then fell back. He took a long, slow breath, his eyelids feeling heavy. Rebecca, he said, starting to slur. I, I need you to call an ambulance. I'm having trouble staying awake. Rebecca stood from her chair still speaking. After a while, she finally broke down, told me where she'd gotten the Demerol. She said that a doctor had given them to her. Some psychiatrist who was recommended by the staff at the treatment clinic. 
The same one she'd been seeing for weeks as part of her court-mandated therapy. Nathan looked up at her, eyes wide with recognition. Lacey. That was why she'd looked so familiar, even before she'd spoken a word. I'm sorry, said the girl, leaning over, hands on her hips, staring at him with mock concern. Are you feeling a little dizzy? Your face looks kind of pale. It's probably the two grams of Demerol I put in your coffee while you were in the kitchen. I added another half a gram to that glass of water I gave you. I was pretty sure the coffee would cover up the taste, but I was a little nervous about the water. I thought maybe you would taste it, but you drank it so fast, you didn't have a chance. From what I've been reading, two grams should be more than enough to trigger a fatal overdose. But I decided to add a little extra. Can't hurt to be too careful, can it? Nathan fumbled after his phone, which was sitting on the table next to his mug. Groping after it, his fingers numb, he knocked it off the table and onto the rug. He leaned over in his chair to grab it, the whole room spinning around him, and fell forward onto his chest, hitting the coffee table on his way down. The girl walked around his chair, kicking the phone away from his hand. Anyway, she said. She'd been seeing this psychiatrist for a couple of weeks. None of us knew much about him, beyond the fact that he seemed to be helping. But I guess that wasn't really the case. Apparently, after the first few sessions, he offered her some kind of arrangement. He'd keep supplying her with pills, as long as she agreed to blow him. If she didn't, he threatened to call her parole officer, tell him she'd started using again, that he'd found a bottle of pills in her purse after one of their sessions. Nathan lay on top of the carpet, the whole room starting to spin. The girl crouched down next to him, brushing the hair away from his face. I guess that's why you prefer living right above your office, isn't it? She said. Easier access to the bedroom. Probably the same reason you don't like to have a receptionist. No need to worry about anyone out front, overhearing you fucking one of your patients. Nathan drew a shuddering breath, trying to push up from the floor and failing. His vision had started to blur the corners of the room growing dimmer. I guess it's also easy for you to get those pills without anyone caring, she said. You're a licensed psychiatrist, specializing in addiction counseling. Doctors prescribe dolophine all the time to help wean their patients off opioids. Nobody would think twice about you handing out those kinds of prescriptions. You might even have a stash somewhere here, in case any of your patients need a quick fix. Please... Nathan wheezed. You don't have to do this. It also wouldn't be much of a surprise if some of your patients OD'd, said Rebecca. You run a practice treating addicts. It must be fairly common. Nobody's going to blame the doctor if his junky patients can't seem to get clean. Please, Nathan whispered. Rebecca, help me. By the way, the girl said. In case you were counting on your four o'clock appointment to walk in and find you face down on the carpet, don't. I made that appointment. I made the five o'clock too. In fact, you're all booked up through the end of the day. And since it's already Friday, the earliest anyone's going to come in here and find you is bright and early Monday morning. Too bad you don't take weekend appointments. 
or somebody might find you tomorrow. Gives me plenty of time to stick around and wipe this whole place down. Sweep up any hairs or fibers I might have left behind. Not that anyone will be looking for them. The cops will probably think you just had a heart attack or a stroke. And once the coroner tests your blood, they'll assume you just overdosed on Demerol, which you did. Nathan took a shuddering breath. The girl leaned in closer. Even if somebody does get suspicious and decides to check your patient calendar, it won't matter. She stood up, grabbing the small digital recorder and slipping it into her large black purse. You've probably guessed this by now, Nathan, but Rebecca Johnson isn't my real name. The only reason I picked it is because, according to the internet, there are currently 18 Rebecca Johnsons living in the greater DC metropolitan area. Even if the police try to track her down, they won't know where to start. They'll be looking for someone who doesn't exist. Nathan's vision continued to blur. The tall woman standing over him, now just a dark smudge. I don't know how many of your patients you've raped, she said, her voice dropping almost to a whisper. I don't know how many of them relapsed, either, how many OD'd. Fortunately for you, your patient list is confidential. But I do know one thing. Lacey wasn't the first. There were others, weren't there, Nathan? There always are with men like you. It never just stops after the first time. You just keep going and going until you die or you get caught. Nathan gave a last whisper of breath, then lay still upon the carpet. For a moment, the girl stared at him, eyes shut, lips pale. Then she put her fingers to his neck, feeling for any sign of a pulse. She sat, crouched over him, for maybe a minute, until she was sure his heart had stopped and he was no longer breathing. Then she took up the empty glass and mug and carried them to the sink in the kitchen. She squirted them both with liquid soap, then scrubbed them in turn with the stiff plastic brush. She didn't want to leave any trace of the liquid Demerol and water solution that she'd poured out from the metal flask tucked into the waistband of her pants. Rinsing them out and putting them on the drying rack, she lifted a hand to scratch at her neck. The wig she'd worn into the office itched, but she didn't take it off. Not yet. She'd wait until after she left so that anyone who saw her walking in or out of Nathan's house could say only that they'd seen a thin woman with a short bob of brown hair. Walking back into the office, Nathan's long, trim body sprawled out across the carpet. She reached into her purse, pulling out a pair of the plastic gloves that she'd bought at a surgical supply shop. She pulled out a piece of cloth and a tiny spray bottle of disinfectant. She'd start out in the waiting room, before moving on to the office, wiping down every surface she'd touched, and then all the ones she hadn't. It wouldn't hurt to be careful. Besides, she could afford to be thorough. There was still plenty of time between now and Monday morning. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Not So True Crime. Music for today's show was composed by Daniel Birch, Alan Spieljack, Chris Zabriskie, and Parvis Decree. 
If you want to listen to more of their music, you can find links to it in the description of this show. If you like the show and want to help other people find it, you can leave us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts. The more we get of both, the more people can listen to this show. You can also email us at notsotruecrime at gmail.com or follow us on Twitter at notsotruecrime and jvisglosky. We'll be back soon with another original story. Until then, I'm John Visglosky. Thanks for listening.